You're listening to the Faith and Other Oddities podcast, brought to you by the Raven Creek Social Club, where we talk about faith and other oddities. For questions, comments, or to be part of the conversation, join us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, where you can find us at Raven Creek SC. Now for your hosts, Emily Dixon and Nathan Underwood. Hey everyone, welcome back to Faith and Other Oddities, the show where Emily and I read the Bible and talk about it. Um, as many of you probably noticed, there was no show last week. Um, that is because the school I work at had a three-day weekend, so uh, we went to go visit and see everyone, trying to get as much time in there uh, with mom as we can. So We had a full yeah, house. That's a, <laughs> yeah, that was fun. Got to travel a bit, um, but yeah. This I'm looking week, forward uh, to like summertime visits again. I'm already like, why is everybody <laughs> stuck inside the house? We need people dispersed through the yard. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And especially with my two kids, because they, they are, they're good kids, but they are very active. And I haven't had littles in the house except for your two kids and my grandkids. And that just happens periodically. So I'm not used to staying up with that level of chaos and energy. And yeah. <laughs> And like you said, they're good kids. I, I don't have any problems with them. I don't even think I had to get onto them like, you know, maybe once a slight correction when they stayed with me for a week. So, right. you know, right. at those ages, if that's all you're having to do, they're good kids. So, yeah, we're, we're, they, they do pretty good. So, um, but yeah, it's the, um, but yeah, and I'm not going to be uh, terribly promising about what I'm going to deliver today because I had a, <laughs> Long work day yesterday. It was good. I love my job, but man, it was a nonstop day, and so I'm I'm a little worn out. Well, and honestly, it's just going to be kind of crazy because what happens is number one, I've got a couple of things going on. This section, the stuff I was curious about, there wasn't a lot of uh, resources. There wasn't a lot of stuff written about it, so I wound up like researching all these random kind of tangential topics that I kept running into stuff that was interesting and I wanted to include and has some impact on our passage here in First Kings, but maybe not as directly as I would have liked. And then on top of that, my research time was kind of cut up in these little short segments. So y'all are just going to have to hang on for the ride because I kind of went everywhere. <laughs> and the the okay. more choppy my study time gets, the crazier it gets. But um, anyhow, we are still in First Kings. We're in chapter seven. Um, we are talking about the pillars that were put in the temple, um, and we started last week kind of talking about just the construction and how they were put together because it's fascinating to me because I have done some bronze casting. I've done silversmithing, and to think of a project this size, it just, it, it blows my mind. And mm -hmm. I don't think we realize how big it is, and I, I really wanted to find a way to, to make that relatable. And so um, we talked, I think, last week about whether or not it was bronze or copper or brass and uh, all of that and why it was important that it is bronze because... Um, how it how you can work with bronze has got a little different properties than the other metals but um the exact look and 
feel of the pillars and what they looked like were kind of a matter of debate. There's a lot of little details that were kind of hard to set in context and try to it's really hard to envision. And this is actually why, one of the reasons why I, I disagree with Edward Vaith when he talks about um, the tabernacle and how there was no room for artistic interpretation, direct instructions were given. And even though he's talking about the tabernacle there, as an artist, um, you can very quickly see the holes. You can see that there is not a, yes, you can talk about, okay, well, it needs to be ridged. Well, what size ridging? Uh, how should the edges be finished out? Uh, how far apart should they be? How deep should the ridges be? All of these things are still up for interpretation. Um, something's going to be the color blue. What color blue? Sky blue, blueberry blue, robin's eggs blue. You know, what color blue? Mm -hmm. Th those are things that you don't, you can't really describe in words. They have to be something that's shown. So when I was researching these pillars, I found several different depictions of them that artists have tried to recreate. All of them were different right there. That alone tells you that trying to, to decide exactly what they look like is not really something we can definitively put forth to anyone. We, we have to accept the fact that everything is conjecture. And that's okay. And I don't think there's a huge problem with that because the important parts are kept in the uh, passages and they are kept in the words. And so we can be at ease with the fact that we do know they're pillars. We know that they're good size. Matter of fact, they're about 30 foot tall and they're about eight foot tall um, in circumference. So these are pretty good size pillars. They are not tiny. Um, they had decorative cups at the top or caps at the top. We really aren't for sure what those caps look like. This is where most people begin to t kind of take off in different routes in what they think these caps look like. Uh, we've got mm -hmm. elements that are described in the passages, but they really aren't um, they they aren't laid out in such a way that you can definitely say what they looked like. What they do tell us is these these pillars are not for support. These caps would preclude any kind of, you know, um, beam being rested on top of them because at the top we had a lily. Uh, they're decorative in nature. And this was very common to have these kinds of pillars in um, ancient temples. I read one account where people said that um, frequently in Phoenician uh, temples, there was one wood pillar and one metal pillar, the wood pillar being an Asherah pole and the metal pillar being for Baal. I'm not sure. We'd have to do more research. Uh, I kind of was iffy on that point, but I did find other accounts of pillars in ancient temples. Now, we do know right. that, yeah. So, you know, you always want to be careful with your sources and trying to get back to primary sources. There's a lot of just weirdness out there. Um, we'll talk about some things that definitely are not present that some of the conspiracy theorists like to, to try to impose on the text. Now, we do know that they were hollow, so these are not solid, which, I mean, good grief, trying to move something solid of that size made of bronze would, I, I don't even know how they would do it. I'm sure they would have figured out a way. We have great buildings from that time and before that required moving great weights. But um, Jeremiah makes note that the walls of the pillars were four fingers thick. So I'm going to assume that that was not my fingers. So approximately, what, four inches thick? and of bronze roundabout yeah yeah 
and I had, couldn't go by my hands. Mine's more like three and a half. But uh, the 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 idea that these were actually poured in uh, or cast in rings, so you would have segments. One ring would be poured, and then it would be moved to the temple, and they would be stacked. Is probably what happened mm-hmm. with these. That uh, seems to be a common methodology of making these kind of pillars, but it also allows for the transportation from where they were created. And actually, uh, as we get further into this chapter, we're going to talk about where they were poured, why that location uh, may have been chosen. And so they were placed outside the sanctuary, but inside the hall. And probably the most puzzling thing about these pillars is the names that are on them, Yakin and Boaz. Uh, there's a plethora of theories out there about what this is. And yeah, this is what I'm interested in trying to figure <laughs> out, like the symbolism and the, the you know, roots of these names and why there's a bronze C, the different things like that. That's the stuff that I'm curious about. Yeah, I, it's, that's a really good question because you could go down so many rabbit trails and rabbit holes and through the looking glass. And I mean, you end up in alternate, alternate realities when you try to research this, if you aren't careful. Uh, so many uh, theories. One was that they were named after the craftsman who made them. Well, we know that uh, Hiram Abi was the craftsman who was over it. So, you know, these would have had to have been apprentices. And if you're going to put our names on it, why in the world would we put a, an apprentice or even a master craftsman who was hired by the, the main craftsman? Why, why isn't Hiram's name somewhere in the temple? So I kind of don't go with that one. Um, there's I don't know. I mean, debate. that one, I, to, me, to me, that one doesn't seem that far-fetched. There, uh, I mean, like, say, you know, he's, he's already listed as, like, the, uh, the overseer of the whole project, and this might be, I mean, they may not even be um, necessarily, you know, uh, apprentices. They may be, you know, other master craftsmen that he brought in as contract work. I mean, and that's I know a possibility. That that's, that's kind of putting kind of a, I know it's putting kind of a modern saying contract work, but that, but I know that like uh, sometimes, you know, you'll bring in, you know, if you're, if it's a big project, you might as well and bring in some other people who, you know, aren't, aren't going to screw it up. Right. So, uh, and so like, yeah. that, that one doesn't seem too far fetched to me, but, uh, but what else you, you got? Know, but usually whenever you do have a craftsman signing a work, it, it seems to be a little bit more subtle. It, it doesn't, this seems to, it sounds almost like the, these names are, are very easily and quickly seen when you go into the temple. It doesn't seem like it's a signature or a craftsman mark at the base of the pillar. You know, it, so I, I don't know. I, I don't really go with or it. Does it say I the sing, names are written on? Do does I? it say the names are written on them or does it say the names are written on them? Or yeah, just they're that inscribed they're on that? it. Yeah. And okay. so that's. That's the thing. I did There's... not do the reading on this section this week, so. <laughs> We're going to um, fire you. Oh, no, I need you for the technical stuff. Uh, so, <laughs> well, I mean, and the, I mean, and I mean, of course, I also, being a person who is around a lot of fans, particularly of science fiction and various other things, I'm like, it doesn't seem that far-fetched to me that even if it was a small inscription on the back of the pillar somewhere, that someone With who was notice. really wanting to prove how much they knew about the temples, me like, did you know that the artist signed the pillars at the very back on the bottom third, half third of the way around on the inside? You know, the very edge of the lip, you'll see it. The you third know, ridge so, in I mean, from. 
yeah, that's yeah. the kind of like minutia that that I could see someone getting into. Um, yeah, it's, to- that, it's that's just me. It's totally possible. I I think there's more to it because there is a note made of it in scripture. So that kind of makes me think that there's, there's gotta be a little bit more there. Uh, I, I'm not saying I have a better theory. I, I have one that I'm leaning. Well, no, I mean, but I mean, it could have been the writer being like, yes, everyone knows this guys. We, we've all heard. <laughs> <laughs> right. Well, and the, the other theory is that it, they were too famous or too very highly respected priests at that time. Um, uh, we are trying to the, find the... F- evidence of those names right maybe, maybe the priests who were in service maybe the priests who were in service when the uh temple was dedicated kind of thing yeah. that that's one theory yeah maybe um the other theory is that there are you know just other leaders in israel who were um who were prominent another theory is they represent david and solomon respectively in the roles within the temple that uh, boaz means in strength yakin means he establishes so David was identified as Boaz, who in strength gathered the materials for the temple, and Boaz, Yakin uh, or Solomon, actually established the temple because the wording for established is actually uh, mirrored in 2 Samuel 7, where God is talking about establishing David's son. So there is some possibility there. Uh, more symbolically, if we want to go with that route, there's the argument that represents the cosmic tree. Anybody with the flat earth theory, familiar with flat earth theory, should be familiar with the cosmic tree because that's what upholds the, the heavens from the earth and the roots go down to Sheol. Um, another reason why I don't ascribe to flat earth because no one's shown me the cosmic tree yet. Uh, so when we get there, well, that, I might be converted. That's because they're, hi- that's cause they're hiding it. The, the- you yeah, know, this massive tree they, that supports the heavens is hidden. Yeah. Uh, okay. Yeah, sure. I mean, oh, it's okay. the 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 people, the the secret powers that run everything are hiding it. That's you know, <laughs> right? <laughs> but a lot, you know, somewhere near the edge of the earth. I mean, right? <laughs> yeah. Sure. What? Whatever. I'm, so, but the, it's, that it's was, NASA. They're 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 hiding it all. Um. Anyway, but. I'm, it, yeah, of course, and the moon facetious. landing was staged, and um, anyway, but before we go too far into before that, we get, um, yeah, <laughs> the, let's not go uh, too far into that. Yeah, so the, there's some some thought that represents the cosmic tree, but in my mind, it's like, why do we have two if we are just representing one cosmic tree? Um, there's another theory that the mountains or uh, that they represent mountains or the that were the homes of the gods. Remember. Uh, the gods lived in the high places, and that's pretty well established both in Canaanite, Mesopotamian, Egyptian, all the ancient Near Eastern uh, mythology. Of course, we have to go there, um, that they're phallic fertility symbols. That's the other, um, the other symbolic possible representation. Or uh, it's a the single trees. sentence. Do what? The trees? The, tr- the trees. I, I lost are you. You're saying the trees are, are. Are you saying that that was the trees? What's the, the symbol? The, the what pillars? are we talking about? We're still talking oh, about pillars. The pillars. I'm sorry. I zoned out for a second. Okay. I thought we were talking about the tree. I thought we moved on to trees. No. Well, we're still talking about the pillars might represent the trees, but then they might represent the phallic fertility symbols. So 
which was common okay. in other ancient Near Eastern remember temples. I made okay remember I made no promises about this week I, 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 I my brain went well, somewhere else for a little bit I'm carrying this load I'm trying to do it with grace it's all on me I get it uh, but <laughs> <laughs> there's a possibility the two words together form a single sentence and that sing- sentence would read God establishes with strength or in strength God establishes um and you know most of these theories either allow for the inclusion of Canaanite deities to be acknowledged uh, or maybe even used within the temple. And I really can't see any workable reason why these theories should be accepted. Why are we trying so hard to say that God's temple created and crafted by Solomon under, you know, the, the provision of David, who was so devoted to God, who's received the, these blueprints, why in the world would we say that there's all of these other symbols from the Canaanite uh, religion? Now, I say that, and let, let's add a little nuance here and some caveats. Temples looked like temples, okay? All temples kind of had a basic feel and structure and different elements about them that allowed them to be recognized as temples, no matter which god they were built for. So. There are going to be similarities. Specific symbolic representations to other gods were, was something that would not have been allowed. And so I don't, mm-hmm. I don't think a lot of these are workable theories. Now, the one theory that I think has a little bit of textual support is that the pillars have something to do with the kings of Judah. And uh, we... I don't know exactly how to define it, but the reason why I say that is because in 2 Kings 11, 13, 14, it says when Althea, uh, Althea uh, heard the, no- the noise of the guard of the people, she went to the house of the Lord to the people, and then she looked, and there was the king standing by the pillar according to the custom. So the king is standing by the pillar. Then in 2 Kings 23, 3, it says, and the king stood by the pillar and made a covenant before the Lord to walk after the Lord to keep his commandments and his testimonies and his statutes with all his heart and all his soul. So again, the king, according to the custom, he goes to the pillar. So these are things that evidently were used in um, the coronation of the, the, the new king. And whether that was the original attempt, uh, intent, or it was something that, that grew out of the fact that they were there, we aren't told, but because there is a little bit of, uh, you know, two references, two other references, that makes me think that there is something to do with the kingship specifically and not necessarily with anything else that has been thrown out there. Now, um, what I can say, and I feel fairly confident in saying this, that these are not fertility symbols, okay? They're just not. Um, the fir- okay. <laughs> you know, I don't have a problem going out of that one. Uh, they're not male and female. Okay. I've, I saw those that one, one pillar was male and one pillar was female. And it, okay. That doesn't even make sense. Um, then the pillars were supposed to represent a part of the male anatomy and the porch was supposed to be the... There's really no polite way to say this. Um, 
anyway, let's just say the, the porch is not male genitalia and the pillars are not representative of any other thing that comes in pairs with men. How's that? So, <laughs> okay. Not there. I saw entire diagrams of this. It was disturbing. Someone with a disturbed mind came up with this theory. Uh, the temple, uh, on the whole, is not laid out like a human body. Uh, they didn't have robots, okay? It, it looks like a, some weird robotic thing. Um, and honestly, the only places I found on the internet that actually put forth these kinds of theories, and I do kind of rifle through some of these more questionable sites just to see what people are saying who are not of my same worldview. Uh, but the only ones who are putting out these kinds of ideas were the Freemasons, the Kabbalists, uh, tarot card readers, and Wiccans. Okay, these are the people who were who were making these claims about the construction of the temple. So basically, sites that promote these kinds of ideologies, we we really don't need to take seriously because what they're saying is there's some kind of hidden knowledge that only the enlightened, only the initiated can access. And we call that under the broader term Gnosticism, and we know that Gnosticism should be shunned. So we don't have to worry about trying mm -hmm. to figure out their secret code. It's not God's right. code. Right. It, it's just they use the label God, the Bible, Solomon's Temple to get people who want to learn more about God interested. It, it's not because they're going to accurately represent what the Bible teaches. So I think we need to be yeah. very aware of these. They're plots. I mean, that's what they are. It, it, yeah. It, it's not. Well, and, and yeah, and that, that kind of reminds me of there. I, I was talking to you about this the other day. There was somebody who actually spoke Hebrew mm -hmm. and read Hebrew. He, I don't know if he's a man or woman, but they wound up, uh, they, they, they're apparently in uh, a lot of the Kabbalist. Uh, oh, <laughs> writings there's references to solomon's seal which is a some kind of magical uh sigil that allows you uh to to access certain powers and there is uh this person uh made what was what they labeled as quote solomon's seal but and it had all these hebrew and latin glyphs on it which was really funny that it had latin on it as well um but the uh <laughs> But around the edges, apparently, it was garlic bread and cheese or something. I can't remember exactly what it was, but it was something to that effect. And then the and then in the Latin, I think it said like tomato soup or or something like that. And everyone who was into this whole idea of Solomon's seal just you know just kind of ate it up, and it, the whole thing went viral in these groups. And they uh, and the person was like you know like just having a good time trolling the trolls and uh e exposing their ignorance the fact that they're supposed to be these experts on their own uh sect of religion and they don't even know that this glyph says is <laughs> something that's not even close to to what solomon's seal would be well and that's that's what i found in so many of these Sorry. If you just let if you just let some of them talk long enough, they'll show you uh, exactly what they don't know. Is that what, where you were going? It's exactly where I was going. I mean, so often they really don't know Hebrew. They know a they know like an olive is a one. They know that bet is two. 
they don't really know how to do Hebrew, how to read Hebrew. They have a little superficial knowledge, and that superficial knowledge has given them confidence to make claims about the Hebrew that are completely, un- you can't substantiate. They're not supportable. Mm-hmm. And so this the is the reason why effect. real scholars go, yeah, there's, there's no truth in it. And so we've got to be careful where our sources are, and you know, check everyone. Check several credible sources. There's going to be lots of points of debate among scholars on nuance, on um, trivia. Uh, not <laughs> trivia is the wrong word, but you know, uh, uh, minutia. Minutia. Yes, it, there's going to be debate on that. There's going to be debate on exactly what it means. But the foundational, the main themes, the big ideas are—they're going to agree on these things, and there's not going to be a debate on that. So what we need to do is to double check and make sure that what we're, we're looking at has support from multiple sources, multiple credible, well-researched and respected sources, because there is wisdom in an abundance of counselors. And that's the thing. Like I said, there's going to be some debate on different ideas, but when it comes to what the actual text says, a lot of times there isn't a debate, there, there's agreement. And uh, the disagreement comes in, how do we apply and how do we interpret, not what the actual information is. And so that's the reason why I can listen to a lot of um, teachers that I necessar- don't necessarily agree with their interpretation or their application, but I can count on them to present the data correctly and faithfully. Mm-hmm. That's what you want to work with. That's, what, that's who you want to look for. So... Um, other notable characteristics of these pillars, uh, they have pomegranates and lilies. Now, um, pomegranates are considered to be a blessing to the people in Israel. In Deuteronomy 8.8, it says the land of wheat and, har- and barley, of vines and fig trees and pomegranates, a land of olive trees and honey. This is describing the promised land. Pomegranates are one of the fruits that they were going to anticipate being able to harvest and grow with ease. Tradition claims that pomegranates have 613 seeds, just like there's 613 uh, laws of the Torah. I love the symbolism of this. Mm -hmm. Uh, By the way, if you ever count, which I haven't, but other people have, there's not 613 seeds in most pomegranates. There might be a few out there, but uh, most of them, not so much. But the symbolism is that God's law, it's sweet, but it's also messy. And sometimes it can be a little tart. And sometimes, you know, so it's got all of this kind of wrapped up together. It's, it's not just, mm-hmm. you know, it's not like a strawberry that's always sweet, <laughs> you know, or always just easy right. to eat. And you have to work to get at those seeds. Those aren't something you're just going to pick and, and bite. So, which kind of always made me think that maybe the pomegranate is uh, the fruit in uh, Eden, not so much an apple. An apple just seems too easy to me. I, I like the idea of them actually having to work. Like it's, there was some effort put forward. So yeah, that, that's speculation. And we can for sure say it wasn't, uh, what's the apple everybody likes? The Washington reds or? The red, red delicious yeah. or, or the, oh, what? No, there's, there's not that one. There's <laughs> whatever those are, those icky, mealy. <laughs> Mushy yeah, ones. I, I don't know. See, that wouldn't tempt anyone. Now, if it had been a Granny Smith, but those didn't come along until later. 
So anyway, um, but the 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 pomegranates um, actually have their own special blessing in, in Judaism. Before you eat a pomegranate, if you're Jewish, you would say, "May it be your will, Lord our God and God of our forefathers, that our merits increase like the seeds of pomegranate." Um, they're the symbol of a new year of Rosh Hashanah. You would eat pomegranates on that holiday. Uh, pomegranates are found in Song of Solomon, and they were a fruit that was linked to sensuality, of uh, beauty, of love, and fertility. I mean, because there's something you don't eat very easily. You it's it's you have to get your fingers messy. So there's the the tactile. The all your senses are involved in eating a, a, a pomegranate. Plus, there's the multiplicity of seeds. So it works very well as a symbol for all of these things. Even today, a lot of the Torah scrolls are decorated with pomegranates. So there's they still have high standing. Uh, pomegranates have significance in lots of religions. Uh, they, they really have a place of honor. Uh, in Greece, they were known as the fruit of the dead, and they were believed to be created from the blood of the dying Adonis. Persephone was doomed to spend three months in Hades because she ate three pomegranate seeds. Um, mm -hmm. In Zoroastrianism, uh, this fruit was used in rituals and adorned their, they adorned their spears with gold pomegranates. And uh, in Buddhism, even today, it's considered one of three blessed foods. In Islam, it is included in descriptions of paradise. The Egyptians saw it as a symbol of prosperity, and ancient pomegranate seeds were found in tombs and graves. So uh, they were very, very much a part of culture from the very beginning. And uh, there was even an ivory pomegranate found in the palace of Nimrod at the Assyrian king. So, uh, and also Canaanite graves, there's uh, clay pomegranates that were found in the graves. So the, the, the pomegranate itself is, is a highly charged symbol in a lot of cultures from the beginning of time through today. And one of the reasons why is because in most cultures, the pomegranate is a symbol of female genitalia. So, of course, critics and um, scholars who want to discredit the Bible and want to downplay monotheism within Judaism will tell you this is absolute proof that once again, the temple was a fertility temple. Uh, you know, I, I don't buy it. I, I just don't buy it. Um, the problem with this being fertility symbols is fertility gods were worshipped with ritual acts of sex that happened usually in or around the temple. There's no record of that in, in Judaism. When practiced correctly, this does not happen. This is not part of the sanctioned worship of Yahweh and the temple. So, mm. you know, the practices don't line up with the symbolism or the meaning they're trying to attach to these symbols. And that's the thing about symbols. They have more than one meaning. It, it, it's not limited to one thing. So the other symbol that we talked about uh, are going to talk about is lilies. And those are um, Shoshan or Shoshanim. And um, they are probably connected with the word Shesh, which is six in Hebrew. And uh, that's a six-petaled flower. So we, mm -hmm. the idea of it being a lily is based on the number of petals, 
there's some debate about which lily. There's some really beautiful lilies, a, a diversity of lilies that grow in the area that are native to the land of Israel. Uh, one of the most famous is the Madonna lily. And uh, they are, those are the huge white lilies that we see in a lot of Christian uh, churches around Easter time because they represent re uh, rebirth, resurrection, the new beginnings. And they have been a part of uh, the symbolism from in Judaism and in Christianity for a very long time. The, uh, they're also valued for their fragrance and they would be steeped with myrrh. And these were, used in anointing the oil, uh, in the anointing oils for the priest. And so they were symbols of purity. And lilies are only mentioned 15 times in the Bible. Four times they're described in the ornamentation of the temple, here, either here in Kings or in Chronicles. Two times in uh, the superscriptions of the Psalms. Um, that's Psalm mm. 45 and 69. And they appear to be names of the tune to which that psalm is, is sung to. And so they weren't necessarily spoken about in the psalm, just to the tune, one of the translations anyway, is to the tune of the lilies. So the idea being hmm. that lilies was the name of the musical arrangement. Eight times it's hmm. uh, mentioned in Song of Songs to describe either each other or their activities. And then one time in Hosea 14.5, and it reads, I will be like the dew to Israel. Shall blossom, he shall blossom like the lily. He shall take root like the trees of the, oh, of Lebanon. <laughs> I couldn't read my own writing. So only one of these verses really helps us understand what the symbolism of the lily would be according to biblical text, what the Bible has to say about lilies. And that would be Hosea. And the um, Hosea one is has the lily standing in as a symbol for someone who is blessed by God. And Arbanel, uh, he, uh, he cites a tradition that says that rain would drown a lily, but it would blossom if watered by the dew, and its heart is always turned upwards towards the heavens. So if we remember that all of the imagery of the temple is about recalling Eden to mind, it's about trying to make us Think about the, the creation and that time when humanity actually walked with God, when we could have conversations with God. That's what the temple is primarily supposed to do. We can go back to Genesis 2, 6, and it says, And a mist was going up from the land and the watering the whole face of the ground. Rain in Genesis is the demonstration of judgment for sin. Very seldom in Genesis. Now, in other places, when we get into Samuel, we get into Judges, rain becomes a sign of God's blessing. In Genesis, not so much, because we have the flood, we have um, fire and brimstone rained down on Sodom and Gomorrah. Uh, the idea of rain being not so much a blessing, but more of a demonstration of wrath is what we find in, in Genesis. And due throughout the Torah, is always presented as evidence of God's blessing. In Isaac, um, no, sorry, Isaac blesses Jacob. This is Genesis 27, 28. It says, may the Lord give you the dew of heaven. Conversely, his blessing to Esau in Genesis 27, 39 says he will dwell away from the dew of heaven. In Exodus 16, the manna comes with the dew, also in Numbers 11. In Deuteronomy 32, God, uh, Moses asked, 
that his words drop like rain, speech distilled as dew. Deuteronomy 33.13, Moses blesses Joseph with the choicest gifts of heaven in the ESV, but most translations rely on, there's two Hebrew manuscripts and a Targum that says, the precious things of heaven for the dew. Deuteronomy 33.28, Moses blesses Asher to live in the land whose heaven, whose heaven drops down dew. And so, um, you know, this idea that dew is a blessing, dew is a way of providing moisture for the plants without uh, fear of drowning them, without fear of damage. And in the temple, uh, if it's supposed to be a reclamation or recreation of Eden, then the lily is the perfect symbol for God's provision and gentleness, his gentle love towards his people. So, um, you know, because that's not something as an artist that you can depict. Depicting the dew isn't easy. However, depicting something that was believed to be benefited by the dew, specifically reliant on the dew, that would be a much easier task. And it would have been understood by the people of that day because the idea of dew being a gentle um, source of water for this particular plant probably would have been uh, a common knowledge. But probably most notably is Isaiah 26, 19. You shall, your dead shall live, their body shall rise. You who dwell in dust, awake and sing for joy, for your dew is the dew of light, and the earth will give birth to the dead. So again, this idea of resurrection and rebirth being not just wrapped up in the idea of dew, uh, but also... Uh, the plant that benefits from the dew. And we, we, again, we see that in the Easter. We see this in our Christian churches today when you can walk into a sanctuary and the podium and the stage and all around it is surrounded by these Madonna lilies. And so mm-hmm. I, I think this is probably the purpose of that particular symbol. So verse 23, uh, we're back, still verse uh, 1 Kings chapter 7 says, then he made a sea of cast metal. It was round 10 cubits from the brim to brim, five cubits high, and the line of 30 cubits measured its circumference. This is huge. Now, if you're like me, just reading numbers does not, uh, does not help you one little bit. Uh, I have a hard time envisioning that. So um, we will... Uh, Evidently, I wasn't there yet. The size of this is what impressed me, so I keep wanting to just skip some of the stuff. So we're just going to start with my notes and kind of stay on track. Um, first, we should note that that the tabernacle itself, before, uh, before the temple, actually had a holding tank of water. It was used for the priest um, for washing. That's in Exodus thirty eighteen. <clears throat> Second Chronicles. 4.6 uh, says that this sea is also used by the priest for washing. So there's a very utilitarian um, function of this bronze sea. Now, this is not like a mikvah. This is not used for ritual immersion, okay? In order for this to have been used for that, it would have to have living water in it. It would not need to, it couldn't be water that was stagnant or had been setting. And of course, the rabbis have a very creative solution for this. Because the the sea is supposed to set on the back of 12 bulls. They said that there were pipes that ran down through the bull's bodies, through their feet, and two springs underneath where the temple set. And so the sea was replenished with these fresh waters 
Therefore, it would have been living waters and it could be used for ritual immersion. Um, probably not the case, but it is an interesting theory to think that, um, you know, this, this would have happened. Uh, what we do know about it is that we're told it is cast. Okay, so that's important. It's not hammered, it's not beaten, it's not shaped or carved, it is poured. In order mm -hmm. for this to be poured, it had to be one continuous pour. It could not be layer upon layer because that leaves cracks, that leaves seams. That's, mm -hmm. you, it's just, it would not work. So building this thing would have required an army because the measurements from brim to brim, 15 feet minimum, seven foot tall minimum, 44 feet in circumference. Now, in Kings, it says it holds 20, uh, 2,000 baths. We have no idea what that is. In Chronicles, it's 3,000. So basically, between 11,500 gallons to 17,000 gallons of water. That's a lot. So in order to give a picture that we might be able to wrap our heads around, a, a four-foot-tall pool, 12-foot in diameter, holds 3,000. 398 gallons. In order to get closer, we'd have to up the size of that pool to a 24-foot round pool that holds 11,895 gallons of water. A 30-foot pool, circumference pool, uh, holds um, 18,585 gallons. <clears throat> so somewhere between, a, I'm sorry, not circumference, that'd be diameter. So somewhere between a 24-foot pole and a 30-foot pole is how much water this thing held. Hmm. I mean, so it was massive. Plus, we also know that it's four fingers thick. Another one whose walls are four fingers thick. This thing weighed a ton. So when you think about the process of creating this, first of all, you're going to have to have an army to create the mold that it's being cast in. Uh, th that right there is mind-boggling that they would have been able to create a mold for this that would actually allow them to make a bowl. Um, you would have to have enough fire, animal chips, whatever, to keep uh, enough wood for fires to, to melt the bronze. Mm -hmm. Good grief. That would have taken, again, that, the army, that would have been a massive undertaking because all of this bronze would have had to have been melted pretty close to the same time, and it would have had to be a continuous melting process, keeping everything at the right temperature, because you do have to get it to the right temperature before you can pour it. And as, the, you know, as one um, crucible would have been emptied into the, the, cat, uh, into the mold, uh, the next one would have had to have been right behind it, ready to pour, and it would have had to have been just on, you know, one after another after another. And then um, you would have had pouring happening at multiple sites around it. You wouldn't have had just one person pouring into one spot. It would have been happening mm -hmm. simultaneously, building up from the bottom. Um, or maybe even they could have even done it inverted where they dug out into the sands where the top was at the bottom and then they filled in that way. But it would have had to have been done with precision. And it would have had to have perfect timing. And if there wasn't, there would have been seams. And with that much water, which would have weighed around five tons minimum, 
it would have just popped it. It, it would have it would have broken without any problem at all. And so when you think of the temperatures required, bronze melts around 1,675 degrees Fahrenheit. Um, you know, these are massive temperatures. Uh, there was, um, if, 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 I'm, I'm like, I can vision this because I've done this work and I can think about how hard it would have been, how hard it would have been. And it even gets more complicated because on the rim, it was lined with gourds that were cast with it. And so that's in verse 24. And so anytime you add objects to that pour with depth and dimension and kind of a three-dimensional three quality, what you wind up with are places for pockets of air, which totally ruins your design. And the other thing you end up is places for water to collect. That could possibly explode. Yeah. It's very dangerous. And so it's not something that was easily done. Adding just something that allowed for pockets, you had to have um, ways for air to escape. They're called sprues. Um, just quite simply, without supernatural intervention, which is totally possible. I mean, after all, we're building a temple. Someone died building this. More than someone mm. died building this, just if we were talking natural means. There, there's just no way around it. It, it was right. It was too dangerous. It was a massively dangerous and, and difficult uh, project. This was not just a bronze bowl setting in the temple. And I think because I have done this kind of work, it's something that I can wrap my mind around and I can just go, why are we not talking about what an amazing feat this was? Right. <laughs> this was... Amazing. I, there are people I know who, if you say something about the Bronze Sea, they have no idea that was even part of the temple. And right. why? I mean, it's, it's fascinating. Now, what's really fascinating about it, about it is there's a sea in Yahweh's temple. And Yom is the Hebrew word for sea. And if you know any of the names of the Canaanite gods, you're going to know that Yom is also the name for sea. So the sea god. So mm -hmm. this is where I went down this crazy rabbit, uh, rabbit hole. Um, okay, so first of all, almost every ancient religion has a god at the sea. Uh, seas are terrifying. Uh, they're, they're necessary. They're sources of provision. They are awe-inspiring. Uh, the, the, the sea is everything that it can provoke <laughs> any in every emotion humanity would ever have. I mean, mm -hmm. you, you go out on the, on the waters in a dark storm, the terror, uh, you're floating on a, on a sunny day with a nice breeze, the calmness and the peace of that. But um, every religion, and I'm not talking like every ancient Near Eastern religion, I'm talking, um, you know, Mesoamerica uh, religion, I'm talking Hinduism, I'm talking about Australian Aboriginal religion. Every religion has a god of the sea. And so um, the, the seas, because they are shapeless, are often represented by uh, a shapeless serpentine figure. Uh, again, some kind of either Leviathan, if you're an ancient Near Eastern world, or uh, some kind of dragon, if you're in um, European or Chinese uh, kind of religions. So there's, there's different different representations, but they all have kind of a similar quality of this thing that can twist and turn and take on different shapes as it desires. Now, 
In early Mesopotamian myth, uh, the sea was represented by a female goddess, uh, Namu, who was personified, she personified the primordial waters. Uh, She's also the mother who gave birth to heaven and earth, who bore all the gods. Now, in Namu's uh, mythology, there is no distinction between freshwater and seawater. They're all just kind of mixed. And then later, as the mythologies grew, there did get to be a a differentiation between uh, fresh and seawater. The most famous being Tiamat, who was the goddess, and she was a saltwater. And then there was um, Apsu, who was freshwater. Now, Tiamat, the the goddess of the saltwaters, had to be overthrown and desecrated in order for the earth to be built. Uh, Apsu was the god of the freshwaters. So the intermingling of the two were believed to be what um, produced the first god. And the first gods were, were not so much born as they, they sprang into being. And Apsu, their father, wasn't a big fan of theirs. Uh, he actually wished to kill them off. And so um, he's killed and buried beneath the earth. Tiamat, during all of this, she objected objected to the the idea that her children would be killed um and so one of her sons ia uh overheard apsu that he was wanting to be killed uh, wanting to kill his kids and he managed to kill his dad instead which you know killing the father figure is a very common uh trope in these mythologies and um ia actually builds his home on apsu's corpse and ia gives birth to marduk who later killed Tiamat, and but not before Tiamat gives birth to monsters who do, um, who uh, attack uh, Marduk. So Marduk actually uses Tiamat's. I'm going somewhere with this. I promise. Uh, Tiamat, Marduk uses okay. Tiamat's corpse uh, to to create the heavens and the earth. So half of her body becomes the sky. The other half um, becomes the the clouds the mist and the the bodies of water found on the earth her eyes become the tigress and euphrates um so you know she her body is is defiled in order for humanity to live ia is also known as inki of iridu in the sumerian mythologies so uh, and his home in the sumerian mythologies was the abyss or apsu where he built his home also uh, E.P. Van Buren says later temples were founded in conformity with ordinances or rituals of Eridu, in other words, over the source of fresh water. Now, the water features within temples started becoming such a regular feature and were all said to be drawn from the body of Apsu. Uh, it didn't matter which god that the temple was built to, the, the water source was believed to be Apsu. So it, his, his name actually became the architectural byword for a water source within the, in the temple. So you could look up Apsus in the temple, and it would refer not necessarily to the god, but to the water source. Um, water from Apsu was used in purification rites, and they were believed to uh, have healing properties, and they were also used in exorcism. Uh, the, the, uh, the Dictionary of uh, Deities and Demons says the conception of primeval the primeval sea is essential to temple symbolism. So this is how central the idea of, of having a water source in the temple is. It also cites the temple of Gedea as an example, and it says the temple, um, the temple, oh, 
I can't, uh, is the link between heaven and earth, has its roots in the primeval sea, and thus compromises the whole of the universe. The earth is not only based upon, but surrounded by the sea. So in order to avoid a super long lecture about comparative religion, I'll leave that kind of where... Uh, too late. Too late. <laughs> oh, well, there's more because I actually had to pick up some more. But anyway, Tiamat and Marduk are the, the Babylonian version of the Mesopotamian story of Baal and Yom. And so uh, there's some differences, but the themes are the same. And, uh, you know, the problem with ancient uh, mythologies Anytime you have even the same story written from you know, one, light, one place to another place, there's differences. They're not uniform. Uh, there's always uh, some kind of subtle distinction between one version written in this city and that version written in that city. And so that leaves scholars debating which was the first, you know, which came first, the chicken or the egg, who changed what. That's the really cool thing about scripture. We don't have that issue, at least not in the same uh, not to the same uh, extent that we have with ancient uh, stories. But the, the main theme is that chaos had to be defeated in order for, um, for humanity to exist. And chaos was embodied in this sea god or goddess, whether we're talking Apsu, Tiamat, or, or, ba- or Yom. They're all part of the same system where water is necessary but terrifying. And so in these ancient mythologies, it's necessary because, you know, obviously we need water to live, but terrifying because at any moment in time, it can turn on us and it can kill us. And so um, part of the, the, the God, the head God who had defeated this chaos, his job was to hold the chaos at bay in order to protect uh, humanity. And so... Um, there are some distinctions between the Tiamat and Apsu story and Baal and Yom story. And I, I fell into a huge rabbit hole about what the distinctions were and why they mattered. And at first I wasn't going to go into them, and, um, but I'm going to have to. So I couldn't help myself. But um, anyway, the uh, get my mind in order. Uh, Lauren R. Fisher, he, in his paper, The Creation of... Uh, creation at Ugarit, and in the Old Testament, he contrasts Baal and Marduk, noting that Baal's victory in opposition to Marduk's does not result in um, creation, at least not as we would traditionally define it. Baal's uh, victory over Yom actually just gets him a house. It gets him a palace, and this is one of the major themes of the Baal cycle. And he builds this um, temple or palace, which it's in the story, it's one and the same. His home and his palace are together. They're the, they're the same building. And I think that's something we need to remember. But uh, he does it by defeating Yom. And this palace becomes a microcosm that represents the entire world. And so Fisher argues that despite the, the apparent lack of creation in the Baal cycles, that um, the creation is represented in, represented in the building of the temple. Well, and we kind of see a similar theme within the Bible where the creation of the world is kind of distilled down into something smaller with the creation of the first temple, which is Eden. And then we go into this new temple where we have the same symbolism of Eden replayed. So there, there is a kind of a continuity of thought that we would expect from similar cultures from a similar time happening here where symbols are repurposed. Um, but with the um, 
house of Baal, we don't just have a house. We have the pattern for all of creation, which is being formed because it defines the purpose or the function of each element that goes into the building of the house. So if water is when the, within the house is used for drinking and uh, purifying and um, healing, then water in the world at large is going to be used for purifying, uh, drinking, and healing. And if you're familiar with John Walton's um, work, you know that John Walton sees ancient creation as a matter of functionality versus formation. And so he would seem to support um, Fisher's argument. Now, much of Baal's story is focused on his defeat of Yom and then the building of his house. But it's interesting that when you look at the Baal story, uh, Baal always stands in as a representative for El. El is the creator God as far as he is known as the creator of creatures. He's known as the father of years, father time, uh, the father of mankind. So Baal doesn't create humanity. His father, El, does. And Baal is actually relegated to his common title, which is Prince, Lord of the Earth. And El is recognized as the God who installed him, the one who instituted his kingship. So what's really crazy about the story, though, despite this, El is not a fan of Baal. El actually is in competition with Baal on some levels. There's this, this animosity. Um, Baal, El actually supports Yom, Chaos, to be the, the winner at first and actually tells Yom, hey, if you want to rule the earth, you've got to defeat Baal. You can't get there unless you defeat him. But then when it comes down to it, El flops and he switches his mind and decides that Baal needs to be the one in charge. And so there's this really weird dynamic that's happening within the story where there's no unity within the, the Baal and El figures who, who are trying to, to rule the earth. But at the same time, they're totally dependent on each other. And Baal only rules under the um, permission and mentorship or sponsorship of El. And so... Um, the story of Baal and Yom is basically showing how Baal, despite El's desires and despite um, El's uh, affinity for Yom, Baal is the one who keeps Yom at bay. Baal is the one who, who stops Yom from, from destroying humanity. And so um, Baal is completely terrified that Yom is going to return. And one of the, the distinctions of his house, he won't even put windows in his house lest Yom rises up and floods him out. So there's no water within Baal's house and there's no way for water to access it. And I, I thought this was an interesting point because when you go back to what we looked at a few weeks ago, the windows of the temple for God are described at length. And so mm. we have these, these uh, this, um, very sharp distinction. And uh, the Baal's defeat of Yom is what allows him to have divine rest. This is uh, pulling on Walton's notes here. And Walton notes that a &E, in the a &E cultures, divine rest is wholly dependent on winning this divine conflict against chaos. And even after Baal won, he still lives in fear of Yom. And so um, in Genesis, though, what we see is the complete opposite. 
God is not in conflict with Yom. He's not in conflict with the sea. In fact, the, the picture we have is, is quite the opposite. He broods over the water. And the word picture with that that's supposed to go with that is found in Deuteronomy 32, 11. It says, like an eagle that stirs up its nest and flutters, and that's ESV, brooding's a better one, but flutters over its young, spreading out its wings and catching them, burying them on the pinions. It's this idea of care that a, that a mother bird provides to her, her eggs and her hatchlings. It's not... Mm-hmm adversarial it's not having to overthrow and i'm not saying that there's no imagery in the bible where god you know defeats chaos we we have that and we're going to talk about where we find that but in genesis that what the temple is supposed to be pointing us back to what the temple is looking at for its primary source of inspiration there's no conflict it's always about care it's about bringing out the best and shaping these elements, and particularly the, the primordial waters, to God's service. And there's no resistance. There's no defiance on the part of the water. The water does what it's commanded to do, which is to separate and to make room for the, for the earth so that humanity can live. And so I think we're going to stop right there because I want to pick up where um, the Bible does talk about the conflict. Yeah, and then well, um, uh, after we kind of look at some some more things about uh, the sea as conflict and chaos, and why that's important, and how the the this bronze sea is actually this massive statement that served a lot of purposes within the temple, because it it says so many things to really depending on who is looking at it, who's coming to to see it, and mm-hmm. it, that which is what good art does. Good art lets everybody come with right. their own baggage and understand it in a way that's unique to them. So mm. we're going to talk some well, more about thing, that. Well, one thing that, uh, yeah, well, one thing that um, I, I want to bring up that, and, and this is just, I just want to kind of touch on this and tag it on. It's probably part of where you're going, but you're talking about the, the father-son conflict that goes on. And we've mentioned this, I think, before, but I think it's always worth mentioning that that's one of the things that really does set apart our faith from a lot of the other ancients is that there is um, the the tendency of the 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 son to overthrow the father mm-hmm. in those ancient uh, religions, whereas in Christianity the son is submissive to the father, right. and they're also one. Mm-hmm. But that's a whole nother when we get into. The, but it's it's counter to the narrative uh, that you get with the with the other religions and. Uh, one of the things that I was really thinking about with that as you were talking about, I know it looked like I was just zoning out, but I was uh, <laughs> listening to, <laughs> to I wondered if you were a good deal of it. <laughs> um, yeah, like I said, I'm, I'm a little off this week. But um, no, it, what, one of the things I was thinking was that um, Lewis kind of talks about not necessarily the ancient religions aspect of it, but um, he talks about this, and I don't know if he uses the phrase, but it's like this generational narcissism. Um, is kind of fed into that idea as well, that we know better than our parents. Mm-hmm. Well, in Judaism, it's honor your mother and your mm-hmm. father. And so it kind of bleeds into every aspect of it, uh, that it's not necessarily, um, you know, every, every generation thinks that they've got the next best thing. And it's not necessarily a one-to-one, but if you have a God whose identity is wrapped up in defeating his father, then what's your 
action going to be as a child? Right. Uh, so, and then, and then, you know, not to, not to appear anti-science because I'm not at all. I think I, I personally, I think science is just, uh, you know, understanding the, the way God built the mm-hmm. world. But instead of honoring God in our discoveries, too many people want to take it to, oh, well, look how much smarter we are than these ancient people. Yeah. And it's, uh, again, I'm not anti-science. I, I'm absolutely pro-science, uh, but well, I, think that, I think that people take it too far when they go, oh, well, see, this is, and this is uh, what you once thought was just some kind of miraculous uh, way of the universe working and, and, you know, the harping on the God of the gaps theory. But whenever we do engage in these things, whatever we're doing, you know, we should do it to honor the Lord and go, oh, it's really interesting how he put the universe together so that it would work this way and so that we could discover these things and so that we could take dominion over the, the, mm-hmm. the world. Um, I think sometimes so, we forget anyway. that ancient people were busy coming up with technologies like oh, houses, you know, things that allowed you to right, survive right. more comfortably so you could think about other things, uh, you know, plumbing. Yeah, well, it's, it's <laughs> yeah, and, and I'm, not, I'm not 100% sold on Maslow's hierarchy of needs, um, but, you know, there is something to be said about um, when your you belly's know, having your basic needs. <laughs> yeah, having your basic needs met. I actually, when I was listening to an episode of Revisionist History recently where they were talking about the, uh, the, the guy who made the K-rations. Okay. I can't remember his, his name, but the, the doctor who came up with those, he actually, they did a, they did a study during World War II that was a, it was a uh, starvation study. And the uh, participants basically just were went without food for months and months on end. Um, yeah, they they had they had like these tiny rations of food they could eat every day, and um, yeah, it's a very disturbing episode. But they were talking about how when you're in that situation mm-hmm. and you're being denied food, that the way you think about the world changes and uh, you, you stop, you know, it mentally, it drains you. And the only thing you can think about is food. And he said, people, people talk about going to a large meal and saying, Oh, I'm starving. He's like, no, no, your body does, does not think about a large feast when you're starving. It thinks about something else Mm -hmm. and it gets very dark very quickly. So I recommend go check that out. If you want to, uh, peer into kind of the minds of, of how some ancient cultures existed because food was not always readily available. Yeah. Um, I, so it kind of gets you a little glimpse into that. Well, and that that's where we, you know, we really do build on the, sh- you know, the shoulders of the people who came before. And so, mm-hmm. you know, the person who figured out what, what a spoon was, was, I mean, it seems like such a simple thing because we all have them in a drawer in our kitchen somewhere, you know. But yep. that was a major improvement over what things were before that. So uh, we, we need yeah. to recognize yeah. and it took time and it took effort for some of these basic things to, to get instituted to the point that we as human beings no longer even consider them. It, we, yeah. Yeah. I mean, when you, when you think about because you're talking about the bronze casting and stuff, and you think about like, you know, the wooden spoon that was carved out with a rock mm-hmm. and then... <laughs> And then the other rock that allowed you to carve the other rock thing. And then you found the piece of metal that you figured out somehow you figured out could melt (laughs) and be molded. I mean, that, I mean, I, I want to know what was going on with that guy. Uh, well, yeah, I mean, and that's the thing It's like, and who figured out that the guts of animals could be, you know, tuned 
when they're dried and stretched. I mean, that's uh, yeah, yeah. Music is yeah another thing, and then well, and then you you back to the spoon. Um, you know, being able to take uh, two pieces of rock and make a uh, make a an arrow or spearhead and take down uh, a bison, and then you find out that you can uh, shape and carve its horns. Mm-hmm. Uh, and make a a, a a horn spoon, which is going to be more durable and more water resistant than your wooden right. spoon. I mean, it it really, I mean, it is. It it builds one thing on the next. Um, I mean, that's. I mean, we're going to the Natural History Museum here in in Norman, and you know the that's a cool museum. the ways that the yeah the the ways that they uh, they use the different parts of the bison. You know, like they're using the bladder as a as water mm-hmm. storage. You know, just things that we wouldn't think of doing, right. but they certainly did. Um, and yet so. we act like this is, you know, we get so smug and we think, oh, well, of course they did that. Yeah. Mm-hmm. No, mm-hmm. no, really think about it. Why did they do that? How did they get there? What, you know, those are really major discoveries whenever you're living off of the earth. And so. Yeah. And, and that you can, you can scrape the stuff off the inside of the hide and boil it down and make really good glue out of it i mean just i mean yeah it's a it the process is amazing it uh, really is and, and that's so. and that's the reason why i think it's really cool to study these to, to remind ourselves that um we're not as advanced as we'd like to think we are we benefit from the advancements of other people who came before us and so mm-hmm. we can take mm-hmm. no credit for the fact that we have central heat and air or electric lights. I mean, right, <laughs> that's just, right. and it's ridiculous for us to sit here and think that we can. So uh, unless, you know, you are actively involved in inventing and manufacturing these things, just cool your jets. <laughs> yeah. Well, that being said, it seems like a great place to, to end. I was trying to be on the positive and wonder side, and you're all getting grumpy with it. So I guess. Uh... <laughs> Sleep deprivation, okay? <laughs> I do good to be positive uh, every, and cheerful on a good day. <laughs> I, I understand that. Um, but yeah, well, everyone, uh, thanks for joining us, and we will see you next time. Uh, and thanks for being patient with the us uh, taking a little time here and there to deal with family stuff. It's just getting to be a little bit crazy lately, and we look forward to seeing everyone, or I guess everyone, joining us next week. If you have questions in the meantime, ravencreeksc.com is the website. Ravencreeksc is the social media handle. Um, get in contact with us and, um, we'll, uh, love to have people be part of the conversation. So we'll see you next time. Thanks. Bye. You've been listening to the Faith and Other Oddities podcast, a Raven Creek Social Club production. Don't forget to follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. If you like what you've heard, please write us a review on iTunes or consider supporting us on patreon.com slash Raven Creek SC. As always, thank you for listening and don't forget to join us next week.